really want to welcome you guys here today. Um, the Cato Institute, uh, we're, we, we provide a forum to discuss ideas, public policy, uh, and, and how to uh, foster change that's positive uh, moving forward. Uh, and we're here today with uh, people from different sides of the political spectrum to uh, debate the topic at hand. Um, if you guys noted on the way in, there's a couple tables set out front with some extra information. If you haven't grabbed a copy yet of After the Welfare State, uh, feel free to grab a free copy at the front. Um, there's also sign-up sheets for several different organizations to learn how to get more involved. Uh, one of the exciting things about these forums with, with young people is that uh, we get to cross paths with a lot of people we don't see regularly, and there's a lot of opportunities to network and get connected. So I really encourage you to take advantage of that. Uh, so tonight's issue, um, the welfare state and millennials, is it a burden or is it a blessing? Um, it, it's a really interesting issue, particularly now. Uh, the welfare state's been a growing phenomenon in the world uh, for over 100 years, since Otto Ben Misbark uh, rolled out his social insurance program uh, back in the 1880s. Uh, many other governments across the globe have created state programs that uh, provide retirement, education, medical care, housing, income, and many other benefits in an effort to bolster civil society and to provide economic stability to their citizens. Uh, but the question is now, are they still working? Uh, in recent years, many nations have seen state outlays and commitments grow to levels unsustainable with current economic growth, uh, with demographic changes, and with public choice politics. Uh, the big issue for us is that uh, much, if not all, of this burden will fall on young people, many of us sitting here in this room. Um, so as policymakers, scholars, average citizens, students gather to debate and discuss the path forward, uh, many questions are being posed. Is the welfare state uh, a model for the 21st century? Uh, are the fiscal challenges we're now facing as, an, as nations simply a result of uh, the financial crisis and they'll work themselves out over time. Um, what are the opportunities uh, for today's young people who are having problems finding jobs and are yet facing potentially looming bills for these programs that they're not even sure if, if they will receive? Uh, so to address tonight's uh, topic, we've got three wonderful scholars who've agreed to be here with us. Uh, we've got Tom Palmer to my left and then Michael Tanner and uh, William Galston. Uh, Tom Palmer is one of the most eloquent and sought-after speakers on libertarian political philosophy and its history of ideas. He's vice president for international programs at the Atlas Economic Research Foundation, which is just up the street here in DC, uh, and it trains and supports free market think tanks internationally. He travels around the world from Budapest to Chile, Afghanistan to Moscow, Germany to Arlington, Virginia, uh, motivating groups to take a stand for the audacious hope that people we're born to live free and should pursue a free society. He has a long history at the Cato Institute, uh, serving as senior fellow and director of Cato University, but perhaps his most outstanding accomplishment is being Cato's first intern. Uh, you can ask him when that was afterwards. Uh, Michael Tanner is the senior research, a uh, uh, senior fellow here at the Cato Institute, uh, where he heads research on a variety of domestic policies with a particular emphasis on healthcare reform social welfare policy, and social security. His work on social security choice uh, has, been, has had a major impact on the national debate for privatizing uh, the program. Uh, he's a prolific writer, uh, and his pieces have appeared in nearly every major American newspaper, uh, and he has a weekly column in the National Review. As a sought-after writer and commentator, 
Mr. Tanner has reputably developed the skill of writing entire op-eds on an iPhone, <laughs> which is pretty remarkable. Uh, Mr. Palmer and Mr. Tanner both are contributors to this book after the Welfare State co-published with the Atlas Research Foundation and Students for Liberty. Uh, William Galson is a political theorist who is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, uh, which is just up the street on Massachusetts Avenue. Uh, he works on the institution's governance studies program. In addition to being the author of eight books and more than 100 articles in the fields of political theory, public policy, and American politics, he was also the founding director of the Center for Information and Research on Civil Learning and Engagement, um, which does some excellent voter engagement research. Uh, he is a former senior advisor to President Bill Clinton and has also advised the campaigns of Al Gore and Walter Mondale. Uh, he's the author of The Practice of Liberal Plurism uh, and several other books on political theory. Uh, I ask that you uh, welcome all of our scholars here. We'll start with Montana. Thank you, Chip. I should mention also that uh, we are very grateful that Bill has agreed to be here. He has an extraordinarily full schedule and will need to leave here at 7 o'clock prompt so he can go take on Bill Crystal. So please give him hell uh, for us as well. This is an audience that is likely to be on your side of many of these discussions. And I should also mention that I greatly admire uh, Bill's career as a public intellectual, a scholar, and someone engaged in public policy. And I do recommend his book very strongly, Liberal Pluralism. So it is after you've read After the Welfare State, I encourage you to read that book. <laughs> uh, now, I've spoken on this theme a number of times in the United <coughs> Kingdom and Belgium and other countries. I just got back the other night from Russia. And people around the world understand what we mean by a welfare state. But most Americans do not. They associate welfare with the poor only. They don't think that they're receiving welfare. That's what poor people get. And yet, the widest definition of means-tested programs uh, in the federal budget indicates that between a quarter and a third, closer to a third, of the portion of the federal bu budget associated with transfer payments could be considered oriented towards the poor. The great bulk of it is not. In fact, all of us live in a welfare state. We are all forced upon penalty of jail into paying for Social Security, Medicare, and a host of other programs. We're taxed for or receive money via agricultural subsidies, support for student tuition, state universities, and much more. Our homes, home purchases are subsidized by a variety of tax breaks, and then the loans are securitized by government-sponsored agencies that direct loans to less qualified buyers. I'll talk about that in a moment. And then don't forget our massive corporate welfare programs that subsidize firms to market lemons abroad, to be able to market a wide variety of different products, all subsidized by the United States government, the subsidies of solar panel companies, for example, the Solyndra case, and of course, producing ethanol and possibly the most astonishingly inefficient program for energy production imaginable in which not only is it economically inefficient, but some suggest it actually takes more than a gallon of fossil fuels to produce the equivalent in ethanol in terms of motive power. So welfare states are not just a system or a set of beneficent gestures, as they're often presented. They're <clears throat> systems that must generate coalitions of constituencies sufficient to maintain themselves. So everyone is roped in in one way or another. This is one reason why means testing of Social Security benefits has been resisted for so long because it would be evident some people 
are paying and not receiving. Instead, everyone qualifies for Social Security. Now, the welfare state originates as a system of control through dependency to generate loyalty to the state. If you want to think about this particular system, Otto von Bismarck should be considered its, considered its grandfather, the man who introduced blut and eisen, blood and iron, as a principle of European policy. He confirmed that the purpose of what he called state socialism was to generate dependency and thus loyalty, a which was what a powerful Germany needed in order to dominate Europe. Whoever, and I quote, has a pension for his old age is far more content, far easier to handle than one who has no such prospect. Look at the difference between a private servant and a servant in the chancellery or at the court. The latter will put up with much more because he has a state pension to look forward to. A.J.P. Taylor, the great British historian in his biography of Bismarck, concluded, quote, social security has certainly made the masses less independent everywhere. Yet even the most fanatic apostle of independence would hesitate to dismantle the system which Bismarck invented and which all other democratic countries have copied. Well, he was right. The welfare state has made the masses, quote, less dependent everywhere. That is to say, more dependent everywhere. But I think we have now reached the point where we can, should, and must dare to dismantle, quote, the system which Bismarck invented. For the welfare states of the world are fatally overextended. Now, many argue that the welfare state is about helping the poor. But I suggest that they should ask whether the same politicians who support food stamp payments to make food more affordable for the poor are also the ones who support agricultural price supports to make that same food more expensive. Are they helping the poor when they make their food more expensive or when they subsidize its purchase? And when the surpluses that are generated by price floors are then sent abroad through US foreign aid, we find the same members of Congress voting for that as well. So keeping prices high, subsidizing the poor to pay for the higher priced food, and then sending the surpluses generated by price supports abroad are best understood as part of a political strategy to maintain the incomes and political support of farmers. If it were just about making food cheaper for the poor, there'd be no need for floor prices for agricultural products. I think this is better understood as a political system of graft, the use of taxpayer money to generate political support, not a system of benevolence toward farmers or the poor or foreigners. Now, we should recall that the welfare state may be justified in public discourse as a safety net. That's a typical thing when you talk about it, say, we need a safety net. But that's not what our welfare state is. It's not a safety net for those who have fallen through some misfortune. <clears throat> it's an all-encompassing net that traps all of us. Indeed, the cradle-to-grave system, I learned only recently, the man who used that in a public speech was Winston Churchill, not uh, a leftist by usual definition who promised a cradle-to-grave system. A safety net may be justifiable, but the justifications offered for it should not be stretched beyond all plausibility to encompass the actual welfare state that we see today. Now, I discussed those issues at some length and after the welfare state, and I also offer there evidence for the following claims. First, the welfare state, the actual existing one, not an ideal one that wouldn't do foolish things, but the one we actually have, is substantially responsible for setting in motion the chain of events leading to the financial crisis. The seeds of the current crisis were planted in 1994 
when the U.S. administration announced a grandiose plan to raise home ownership rates in the U.S. from 64% to 70% of the population through the National Partnership in Home Ownership, a partnership between the federal government, banks, home builders, financiers, realtors, and others that had some special interest. And the way in which this was going to accomplish it was, quote, making home ownership more affordable, expanding creative financing, remember those words, creative financing, simplifying the home buying process, reducing transaction stock costs, and so on. So that extension of the welfare state, making it possible for more people to own homes through government policy sounded so reasonable to so many. Why shouldn't people own their own homes just because they haven't saved for a down payment, don't have good credit, or maybe don't even have jobs? Why not make home ownership more affordable through creative financing? Government agencies, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, government-sponsored enterprises, were directed to convert renters into homeowners by lowering down payment rates, drastically lowering bank sta uh, stand lending standards among banks, increasing the amount of money directed towards less qualified purchasers, securitizing those mortgagers, and a host of other measures. And it was bipartisan. It wasn't just the Democrats or just the Republicans. The FHA, under the Bush administration, Federal Housing Administration, offered loan guarantees on mortgages with 0% down payment. As Bush's uh, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development said, quote, offering FHA mortgages with no down payment will unlock the door to home ownership for hundreds of thousands of American families, particularly minorities. And he added, we do not anticipate any costs to taxpayers. <laughs> now, the US government deliberately and systematically lowered lending standards, generated a housing bubble, and did so in order to make sure people had access to homes, to be responsible for their welfare. In the book, Johann Norberg explores that issue in much greater depth. Second, the welfare state is primarily responsible for the current debt crisis that is, that is shaking the world, most notably in the European Union. Professor Aristides Hatzis in the book details that in the case of Greece, but it's actually a wider phenomenon. Huge increases in spending in recent years in the US the looming issue of unfunded liabilities is overwhelmingly due to welfare state expenditures. To be sure, foolish foreign interventionism abroad has cost a couple trillion dollars, and that's a serious matter that has contributed to the problems that we have. But in fact, the bulk of this has been welfare state expenditures domestically. And third, the unfunded liabilities and the resulting fiscal imbalance that Michael Tanner treats of are unsustainable. The welfare state will not last. There's an old truism that things that can't keep going on won't. And our welfare states won't continue. What matters is what <clears throat> comes after. What will we do when the state is not able to make good on the various promises that have been made to populations on the basis of which those populations made their decisions about the future? We can't just fiddle some dials or tweak a few things or push little buttons on the machinery of policy. Very serious, radical changes and cuts have to be made. What are we going to do? And that is the problem that faces the millennial generation. The job of creating peaceful and orderly transitions from state-induced dependence on the one hand to freedom and independence on the other, from perpetuated poverty to upward mobility, from clientelism to active citizenship falls to the generation that is reaching adulthood today. Your elders have failed you. It's up to you to express in public 
is systematic and systematic and constructive involvement in public debate and policy formation, your justified anger at the wastefulness, the irresponsibility, and the recklessness of your elders, who thought that kicking the can down the road would make the problems disappear. We're down the road now, and this generation cannot kick the can any further. I think it's the end of the road for the welfare state. <laughs> Thank you very much, and let me just uh, begin by expressing my thanks for being here and the chance to be on a panel with uh, Tom Palmer, who's one of the uh, great freedom fighters uh, of history, unsung uh, perhaps, but uh, has done enormous good around the world. And Dr. Galston, who uh, not only is being a hero here tonight, but has done some terrific research uh, that I've certainly relied on over the years in, in many, many ways. Uh, as you just heard, uh, Tom just sort of make an allusion to the fact that the welfare state is no longer uh, affordable. Regardless, we could debate whether or not it's ever done any good or not, uh, but we, I don't think we can debate whether or not it is able to continue. Uh, I just want to make the point that when we talk about the welfare state, this is the uh, U.S. budget here. Uh, politicians love to talk, if you listen to President Obama, he's always talking about we're going to invest. Uh, if you actually want to look at what we spend money on in this country, investment, which means that's roads and bridges and research and development and all of those sorts of things, is about uh, 6% of federal spending. You could throw in another 4% or so if you want to include education uh, as consider that an investment and uh, education spending as well. So about 10% of federal spending might be considered real investment uh, there. We spend about twice that on defense. Uh, we spend about nine, per, uh, we spend about 6%, sorry, about, about 6% on uh, net interest. Uh, but about 61% uh, of federal spending might go to the overall welfare state. And by this, I'm meaning Medicare, Social Security, uh, the 126 anti-poverty programs that the federal government has. Uh, corporate welfare, uh, all of these other sort of transfer payments and systems that we have, the, the at-large welfare state that Tom was just talking about. That's where federal spending is going. And the result of all this spending, of course, is that this year, uh, for the fourth consecutive year, and we have now run a deficit in excess of $1 trillion. Uh, now, if you look at the projection of where that's going uh, for the next couple of years, we do have a slight decline projected in the budget deficit. It gets all the way down to about $550 billion, uh, which actually used to be real money, but, uh, but now it's sort of a rounding error, I know. But, uh, but it's, uh, we get down to about $550 billion. And then, of course, once the entitlement programs of Medicare and Social Security really kick in, the annual budget deficits take off again and go through the roof into areas that are clearly unsustainable. You're not going to have a sustainable budget deficits where the annual budget deficit is uh, more than a third of the gross domestic product of this country. Uh, but just to put this in context, you know, you hear so much about the crisis in Europe. Well, our budget deficit as a percent of GDP is actually worse than that of all but two countries in Europe. Uh, only Ireland and Greece have uh, larger budget deficits uh, on an annual basis as a percentage of their GDP. Uh, so we're number three uh, in trying hard. Uh, if you want to take the, uh, you know, say the annual budget deficit is sort of the yearly measure of our irresponsibility, if you add that all together, the uh, measure, total measure of our uh, profligacy is actually the national debt. Our national debt is $16 trillion. 
Uh, just to put that in context, uh, if you were to pay the national debt off at the rate of $1 every second, uh, we could pay off the national debt in a mere 507,000 years. Um, so uh, we are actually, if you want to put that, look at that compared to Europe, there are actually four countries that have a bigger national debt compared to their uh, GDP than we do. Uh, it includes uh, Ireland and Greece again, but also Italy and Portugal. Uh, so we're looking much better uh, on this particular measure. Uh, but of course, that's not the real measure of debt. Uh, there's several different ways you can look at debt. <clears throat> that's sort of the on-the-books debt, if you want. That's the amount of debt that, uh, that we actually owe somebody. Uh, sort of physically, it's the debt held by the public plus the intergovernmental debt. That's the government debt the government owes to itself, the trust funds and Social Security and Medicare and so on. Plus, as I say, plus the debt held by the public, which is the debt that you hold if you have investments, if you buy a government bond, that sort of thing, this debt that the Chinese hold and, and, and other countries and things of that nature. That's what the $16 trillion is. But there's another type of debt out there because we can look into the future and we can look at programs like Social Security and Medicare and we can estimate what they're going to have to pay out in the future. We know what population growth will be and we can estimate how many people there are going to be in any given year. Uh, we can look at that. We know what current law says we have to pay each of those people who's going to be retired in a particular year. And you can figure out how much money we're going to have to pay them. And then you can also look and you can estimate how much money is going to come into the system. We know but roughly what economic growth will be, how many people will be working, what they should be earning, uh, how much taxes they're going to have to pay on that. So we can look at that and we can estimate how much money we're going to have to, we're going to be bringing in. You can find the difference between the two. And that's the unfunded liabilities of the Social Security and Medicare system. You can take those unfunded liabilities, add that to the amount that we owe in terms of the, the national debt, the $16 trillion, and you actually find out that uh, under the most optimistic uh, scenario, we owe about 400% of our GDP, about uh, $60 trillion. Uh, and under the worst case scenario, we owe about $120 or $130 trillion or about 911% of our gross domestic product, nine times the value of all the goods and services produced in this country over the course of a year. Uh, clearly, that's going to produce a, a few problems here. In fact, that is actually, uh, under that worst case scenario, uh, we owe more than every country in Europe, including Greece. So we are actually technically in a worse financial situation than Greece, sort of being propped up by the fact that we're the world reserve currency and people will lend us money at absurdly cheap rates. Uh, I know some people say, well, we could solve all this if we just uh, have the rich pay their fair share of taxes. Uh, so I'd just like to point this out here. Uh, the two uh, lines over here on the right-hand side or my left uh, represent the optimistic and pessimistic scenarios for the total debt we have. As I said, it's about 911% of GDP under the worst case scenario, almost 500% under a be the better case. Uh, the little light blue line right here, uh, that's the actual on the books debt, the $16 trillion we, uh, we owe that's on the books. The little dark blue line there, that's the value of, all of the of total wealth of every millionaire and billionaire in America. So President Obama says he wants the rich to pay a little bit more, raise taxes a little bit, go back to the old tax rates, uh, let the Bush tax cuts expire and all that. I say that's being a piker. I say let's go out and confiscate every penny that those rich people own. Let's take it all. And we wouldn't come close to paying what we owe. 
There simply is no possible way to tax yourself out of this out of this problem. In fact, according to the Congressional Budget Office, if you actually wanted to solve our budget problems by taxes, this is the tax rate you'd have to have. The top tax rate for both businesses and corporations would have to go from their current 35% to 88%. Uh, you'd also have to increase the 25% income tax rate to 63% and the 10% tax rate to 25%. If you did all of that, you could pay for our current obligations as long as we didn't add another government program forever. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's simply no way to tax your way out of this. Uh, Simply running out of time, but I want to just point out that, uh, you know, we worry a lot about whether it's debt or taxes that's going to pay for the welfare state. The real cost is not how you pay for the welfare state through debt or taxes. The real cost is the welfare state itself. As Robert Barrow says, there's a significant negative relation between the growth of real GDP and the growth of government share of the GDP. In other words, that as government gets bigger, economic growth slows. You have fewer jobs, you have less wealth, you have poorer people. Uh, what you might call this is the Ron curve. Uh, Richard Ron from the U.S. Chamber came up with this. He says, look, we need some level of government. You need courts to adjudicate disputes. You need some form of police and national defense to protect our property. You need some form of government. So as your government grows, you actually get some economic growth because you create the conditions under which economic growth uh, is there, some infrastructure, all of those sorts of things. But eventually, you reach a point at which the cost of paying for that government and the fact that that government is so inefficient and begins to squeeze out private sector opportunities, eventually, what you get is a slowing of economic growth uh, as a result of all this. And look, if you want to see where we're going to go, this is what the Congressional Budget Office projects the growth of government to be. Uh, right now, we're, pay we're at around 25%, uh, just under 25% of GDP. But the, uh, if we continue on current trends, and we don't add a single new government program, by the middle of the century, the federal government alone will consume 43% of GDP. And that's just the federal government. Yeah, state and local governments will be between another 15 to 20% of GDP on top of that. So government at all levels will consume 60 cents out of every dollar that's produced in this country. Now, it doesn't matter whether we just borrow <coughs> the money to pay for that 60 cents or whether we tax that 60 cents out of the economy. There is no way you can afford it. And as I pointed out earlier, about 60% of that cost, of that size of government, is the welfare state. And that's actually going to grow because the Social Security and Medicare are actually growing as programs, Medicaid. So the welfare state's actually going to constitute another bigger portion of that 60% of the economy that the government's eventually going to take is going to be taken by the welfare state. The welfare state is not affordable. The biggest problem of that is that the welfare state is being consumed today, and then the bill is being passed on to you. I can't think of something that's much more immoral, basically, than the idea of a bunch of people taking money today and spending it all, and then passing on to a bunch of the bill to a bunch of people who didn't have any say in the creation of those programs and in deciding what was going to be spent today. The fact that we are leaving to next generations to pick up all of those costs, I think, makes the welfare state not just unaffordable, but actually immoral. Thank you all very much. Appreciate it. And now we're here from uh, Mr. Galston. And if you happen to be tweeting, you can use the hashtag CatoLive and follow the discussion there, too.
Well, first of all, Tom, thanks for your kind words and congratulations on the publication of this volume, which I'm sure is going to stimulate a lot of discussion. I am <clears throat> not standing here to defend every jot and tittle of current arrangements. And I'll describe in a few minutes why I'm not doing that and what I think we ought to do instead. But I do want to I, I do want to make some opening remarks that may clarify not only what I'm saying and not saying, but also perhaps create some lines of differentiation between my position and that of the first two speakers. <clears throat> now, as I've very, very briefly, excuse me, <clears throat> laryngitis and too much public speaking are a lethal combination. Uh, as I've briefly made my way through this volume and sort of thought about the topic, I've been able to tease out five different kinds of arguments against the welfare state. <clears throat> the first is straightforwardly philosophical. One might argue, as various authors in various moments in this volume do, that the welfare state is currently constructed flatly violates libertarian or classical liberal principles. And if you happen to be a libertarian or, or a classical liberal, that's the end of the discussion. You know, we should dismantle it because we shouldn't have mantled it in the first place uh, because it violates principles that we have compelling reasons to accept. As I said, that's not my position, but if it happens to be yours, uh, that disposes of the issue. <clears throat> The second objection is moral rather than philosophical. You know, the argument is that the welfare state, you know, corrupts independent citizens into dependency and at the same time weakens uh, civil society and mutual aid. Uh, a scholar at a right of center think tank by the name of Nick Eberstadt has just published a book to that effect called A Nation of Takers. And if you're interested in my view of that argument, you can read the reply chapter that I wrote that is included in, in that volume. You know, suffice it to say that there are some kinds of programs that do indeed r reduce independence, and there are others that may undermine civil society and mutual aid. But you cannot tar all of the programs of the welfare state with the same brush. Some of those programs do, some don't. The third argument is economic, and that is that the welfare state and the growth of the welfare state impedes economic growth. And you just got a flavor of that when you know, Michael Tanner put the quotation from Robert Barrow up. Let me just say for the record, I think that this is a very complex empirical argument. Barrow has laid out one analysis. There are competing analyses by people who are anything but died in the wood ideologues or defendants of the welfare state. And you know, you know, Barrow concedes as he must, you know, Richard Ron concedes as he must, you know, that it's not a linear function. 
you know, there is a point below which the failure, uh, the, the, you know, the failure uh, of the public sector to act, which means to tax and to spend, let's be, let's, let's be realistic, will itself retard economic growth. So my verdict on that question, at least for these purposes, is that we have to be empirical, as empirical as we can be in studying the relationship between the welfare state and economic growth. And we have to be open to the full range of competing analyses on that question. I think it would be a wonderful Cato conference, to, if this hasn't already been done, to bring together some of the best scholars on the question of the relationship between uh, the welfare state and economic growth and really put this issue robustly on the table. So those are three arguments that I've noted for the record but don't intend to engage any further than I've just engaged them. But there are two additional arguments that are also in this volume that I do intend to engage because in one form or another, I accept these two arguments. The first is the fiscal argument, namely that the welfare state as it now exists is quite literally unsustainable and unaffordable. And I think the charts and graphs that you just saw are pretty clear on that point. So the question is not whether that's true, but what its implications are. You know, what does that truth mean for us and for policymakers in the years to come? The second argument that I intend to engage is the intergenerational argument, namely that my generation is robbing uh, your generation and your children's generation. Now, this one really hits home because I have a son who I'd say is roughly the age of most of the people in this room, and within a week or two, he will make me a grandfather for the first time. And so the thought that, you know, the, the thought that the Medicare that I am now eligible for as of about a year and a half ago is robbing him and my grandchild is a rather painful one. And that's obviously not something I would willingly go along with if I had any alternatives. So what to do about all of this? Let me take the intergenerational point first. And here is the way I would define a morally defensible intergenerational balance. It would be a set of arrangements such that burdens do not increase predictably from one generation to the next. A stabilization of burdens, which doesn't mean the same thing as the stabilization of dollars or expenditures, by the way, because there's every reason to believe that over time, your generation will, be, uh, will have higher incomes and more wealth than mine does. And my grandchild's generation will be even farther ahead. So 5% so of my grandchild's income and wealth over time will be more than 5% of my income, my income and wealth. I certainly hope so. Um, uh, and that, it seems to me, is the way I would define something that is, that, that is morally sustainable uh, as a principle of intergenerational relations. Uh, and with regard, with, with regard to the second issue that I intend to take on, uh, the, the fiscal issue, 
it's clear that the imperative there is to stabilize the ratio of, of spending to GDP in a way that both the economy and the polity can support. I do not have, and I don't think it's possible or correct to have a dogmatic view as to what that point is. Uh, it sort of stretches my credulity to believe that 20% is just fine and 25% means the end of the world as we know it. I doubt that very much. Uh, certainly, certainly the difference between 25% and 35% or 45% would indeed be a profound change. But I think it's incorrect to suggest or to build an analysis on the proposition that a little bit more than the average that's prevailed since the Second World War is necessarily going to be fatal to our economy and the body politic. That's, you know, that's one more unproved, you know, un unproved thesis. So I'm, I think of myself as a reformist liberal, not a reformist classical liberal, but a reformist liberal in the sense that most of you, most of you have grown up with. So what should we do? Well, here is my prescription. First of all, and this applies especially to Medicare, uh, let me back up a step. Uh, I am still looking, although you are not, at Michael Tanner's beautifully colored charts. And one thing to point out is that the Social Security line is almost flat. The Social Security problem is not insignificant, but it pales into insignificance compared to the health care problem. Absolutely. I think we can, you know, we can agree on that. And here is my proposal. Without fundamentally transforming the structure of the Medicare program, we should transform it into what I call real insurance. Here's what I mean. If you buy home insurance, you do not expect that your policy is going to pay for routine maintenance and new coat of paint on your house. It's intended to guard against much more severe contingencies than that. Well, if that's the right model for home insurance, why is that the wrong model for health insurance? So that's number one, real insurance. Number two, is a prescription for both tax reform and spending reform that deals with this, what I'll call not the welfare state, but the subsidy state head on. I suspect there might be a lot of agreement on this panel as to the kind of subsidies built not only into our spending programs, but also into our tax code that do not produce aggregate, uh, aggregate wealth that don't foster economic growth and represent simply side payments uh, to organized interests that have been able uh, that 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 have been able to work their will on the political process. I think that's where we ought to begin, and then let's see where we are. Uh, it is my view that we need to spend the trend. The, we need to change the spending trajectory in large measure by stripping out the inappropriate and even counterproductive subsidies. But we are also going to need to change the revenue trajectory. One reason uh, that uh, our budget deficit is so large right now is that 
you know, in the Great Recession, tax revenues plunged toward a post-World War II low. Uh, and they're not going to rise back up to an adequate level, in my judgment, which means that I think we need the kind of tax reform that broadens the base by stripping out the, the subsidies that don't belong there, but also generates some net, net revenue, which means that the, top, the tax rates cannot come down as far as would be needed in order to consume all of the increased revenues from the base broadening. So those are the three steps I'd recommend to begin to address this problem. But it's obviously a much more complicated question uh, to do the economic analysis to explore the extent to which prescriptions of this sort can actually get the job done. Stay tuned. All right, thank all three of you for your great remarks. Uh, we're going to enter into a short time of discussion amongst the panelists, and then we'll open it up for Q&A, and I'll have some instructions for you for that. Uh, but to start off, I'll give uh, Tom Palmer and then Tanner uh, an opportunity to respond, and then Mr. Galson a chance to rebut whatever they say. From here? All right, well, first off, keeping in mind that Bill has to leave here at 7 o'clock, and we are not going to. Thank you. Uh, uh, <clears throat> hold him beyond that so that he can be off and again really give hell to Bill Crystal. so with our support, or at least mine. A uh, question that I would have though, I, I think that these are wise comments that Bill has made, but I do think some of it is rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. The problem is really quite serious and indeed Medicare is the, the big, big, big question for the unfunded liabilities. If it's to be an insurance system, why not have actual insurance? Why do we want to have the President of the United States in between me and the uh, medical providers rather than, or, or even the insurance companies, rather than just having normal insurance. It's exactly right to start out by saying why do we have this system in which routine medical care is considered an insurable event. One reason is our tax system has pushed us to that because of the way in which it's uh, medical be uh, insurance is a non-taxable benefit. So there needs to be very deep thought about these kinds of questions and move towards actual insurance markets. But if that's the case, why not have actual insurance markets? And similarly, the pay-as-you-go system on Social Security really meant that the system was broke from the day it was started. This is a problem that was faced in Germany. When it was established, it was made very clear and understandable. The system was broke, and the critics, people like Ludwig Bamberger, said this is going to cause us a nightmare in future. The reason is when you do it as a pay-as-you-go system, you really have all the incentive to pay out to current beneficiaries who are voters and worry about the accumulated problems later on. So I think pay-as-you-go systems are inherently unstable. They may last for decades, but then you get a big, big, big crash. And you could argue, I think, uh, quite effectively that this was one of the reasons for the collapse of the Weimar Republic, which was the most advanced Sozialstaat, so welfare state of its day, and the burden that was imposed on the tax system because of the so-called employer share, which is a massive fraud, it all comes from the employee's pocket, was uh, simply staggering and uh, crashed the system and with terrible consequences for the entire nation. So I think that pay-as-you-go systems by themselves need to be addressed. All these welfare state programs are pay-as-you-go systems. So if you get rid of pay-as-you-go, why not just have actual private alternatives? That would be the question that I would pose. 
Mr. Galson, do you want to address that? Well, why don't I wait? Sure, because I'll be, I'll be real quick because I do want to get to the questions. The only, the only thing I would say, entirely reasonable arguments and suggestions. The, the big th thing that I think is missed there, though, is this sort of political economy of the situation, the fact that we're not governed by sort of wise philosopher economist kings up there, but, but a group of very self-interested uh, politicians who are busy pandering to various interest groups. And, I, and my prediction would be the problem would be as soon as we have a guarantee that we're going to have this sort of catastrophic insurance system, there would be this immediate rush to what really is this catastrophic insurance. I mean, just look at the debate within the Affordable Health Care Act about what special benefits would be included. What, you know, we had ads run by the, you know, the, the chiropractor saying you had to include chiropractic care, and the osteopaths had to have their thing in there, and the dental, dental care had to be included, and vision care had to be included. We had a, a panel that came out and said, well, you shouldn't necessarily have mammograms at 40, we can wait till 50. And within the day, Barbara Mikulski was on the Senate floor saying, we have to include language in here saying you get them at 40, because all the, the combination of the provider groups and disease constituencies would immediately push this catastrophic insurance down to be co full coverage we have today. The second point on that is simply the fact that one of the reasons why Medicare has almost no deductibles now is the fact that most people aren't catastrophically sick. But a, lot, every, but a lot of seniors are on Medicare, and they want their share of the benefits. They don't want a program in which they're not going to get a whole lot of benefits from it. So what you do is you create a program that yield, and most of these national health care systems around the world do the same thing. They provide a lot of benefits to the great majority of people who aren't terribly sick. They provide all sorts of benefits to them at low cost. And the handful of really sick people, well, then they cut off. Medicare works exactly that way. The sicker you get under Medicare, the less it reimburses you. If you're in the hospital over 90 days, it starts to cut off your benefits. Why? Well, because they're not such a big voting block. But all those seniors who are going to get their physical uh, every year and you know, don't want to have much of a deductible or much of a copayment for that, they vote. So we're going to give them a lot of benefits, and we've, yeah, we'll save some money up here at the other end for these people who we don't really have to worry about. Oh. Well. Very briefly, uh, we are talking, I assume, about a regulated insurance market. Uh, at least I would argue that we must be talking about a regulated insurance market. And we are also, we are also talking about a world in which a fair number of lower-income lower people will not be able to pay the full market price for the insurance policy. Uh, that being the case, so we have a market that is A, regulated, details to come, and B, subsidized. Now, if this is beginning to sound a little bit familiar, you know, it's because that is the basic architecture of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and you, know, you don't need to know a lot of political economy to know that there is such a thing as the free rider problem. Okay? And it's because of the free rider problem uh, that you know, the, you know, the idea of mandatory insurance purchase is added to this tripod to make it you know, a four-legged table. I have just described the Affordable Care Act. And you know, so the question is, and I am perfectly open to the idea that there would be another strategy to accomplish the basic aims of, you know, uh, and the basic aim, I take it from a moral point of view, 
is to make sure that in a society in which in, in which you know life saving and you know and pain mitigating you know medical uh, services are available, that one would do the very best to make sure that those sorts of services are available on an equal basis to all. Uh, this is this is not like goods that are morally indifferent. This is not like creating creating a system where your access to it depends on the income you have. So as long as we're talking about a system uh, that guarantees issues to all comers, uh, that uh, you know that regulates the insurance market in you know in such a way as to eliminate the abuses you know from a political economy standpoint the sellers of insurance policies are just exposed just as exposed to these malign incentives as the buyers of insurance policies as long as we as long as we are talking about you know subsidies for a private insurance market sufficient to enable people even of the most modest means uh, to to afford at least a minimal policy. And as long as we are talking about a system that prevents free riders from overwhelming the system, then I'm perfectly comfortable to you know, talk through the rest of the details with the Cato Institute. Now, with, you know, with regard to the political economy of democracy, you know, which was the long poll of Michael, Michael Tanner's tent, well, what I would say is this, uh, democracy is our fate as modern human beings. You know, it is, in, you, know, it is in, you know, it is going to be impossible, you know, to alter the system setting which is now, which now defaults to democratic self-government which means a bias towards majoritarian democratic self-government. So what we're really talking about, it seems to me, is the kinds of self-denying ordinances, the institutionalization of the kinds of self-denying ordinances that can prevent democratic publics from doing things that in the long run are self-undermining. That's the challenge, okay? And then the question is, well, what is the what is the best structure of those self-denying ordinances? One classic American answer to that question is, well, you establish individual rights, and then you institutionalize a court system that is uh, designed to protect those individual rights. But as we've seen, you know, for every guardian, there is the classic problem of who will guard the guardian. And that's an infinite regress problem with no final and perfect institutional solution. Now, you know, for, you know, I've been in a bipartisan, excuse me, I'm doing fine. I've been in a, I've been in a bipartisan fiscal, cons clandestine fiscal conspiracy uh, for a number of years now. Uh, co-sponsored by the Brookings Institution and the Heritage Foundation. And we were able to agree, about 15 people, you know, representing virtually every shade of ideology and an every analytical persuasion uh, in, in Washington, we were able to agree on a plan called Taking Back Our Fiscal Future. 
that you may be familiar with, which is designed to create some countervailing pressures against uncompensated, uh, uh, uncompensated increase in welfare state expenditures. And by uncompensated, I mean the sorts of things that, that expand contingent future liability. Uh, and we designed a self-denying ordinance that would have a five-year look-back system and a trigger in case the, you know, in case the sustainability assumptions that are built into the plan at year zero are violated or conspicuously out of date by year five. And it strikes a lot of us that this is a reasonable architecture of one of the kinds of self-denying ordinances we need. It's not the end of the discussion, but it's at least the beginning of the discussion. But you know, but this is an argument in the same, it, it, you know, all of these self-denying ordinances are in the same analytical ballpark, it seems to me. And the question is, which ones make the most sense for which purposes? All right, I'll add one quick 30-second question of my own. In one of your recent articles, you wrote that um, one way to address this problem is that there's no reason why people who retire who already make six figures should be getting like more support from the government. But like Michael Tanner raised and several other things that Tom said, uh, they're big voting blocks. And when it comes to public choice, like you, you address some of this without saying it, when it comes to public choice, uh, how much credence do you give those, those arguments to holding the system so that it continues this uh, insolvent state? Well, uh First of all, let me put the moral proposition on the table. Okay, my, my wife and I are hardly rich. Uh, but, you know, a back-of-the-envelope calculation suggests that when we retire, which technically could be last year, uh, when we retire, if we turn, you know, you know if we turn the contribu contributions that we've made to the TIAA-CREF system, into an inflation-protected lifetime annuity, you know, we will have a retirement income you know, well into six figures. Okay? Now, here's my proposition. People like us should not be subsidized by the Medicare system, period, full stop. So here's my proposal, that the system, the system would calculate the actuarial value of the difference between what we've contributed to Medicare over our lifetime and what actuarially speaking we can be expected to draw from the system in our lifetime and fill in that difference with a premium increase so that people like us are paying full freight. Now, if we did that, the advantage of the Medicare system would be guaranteed issue. And it seems to me that for people in retirement, there must be a guaranteed issue principle someplace. But that's the only benefit that we should be receiving from the system. That is to say, the only subsidy we should be receiving from the system. And for the rest, we ought to be paying full freight. That principle might very well have you know, some you know, interesting political consequences. But quite frankly, you know, there are no liberal platonic guardians, nor are there any libertarian platonic guardians. Uh, and, so, and so what we're talking about is the management of political perversities in whichever direction we're looking. And it's easier to say, well, if, 
if pro if program of type X has perverse political consequences, well then don't adopt such a program in the first place. Query, in a democracy, how are you going to prevent the people from demanding and receiving such a program? I mean, so, you know, uh, you know in the end, uh, you can't save the people from themselves. The people have to save themselves from themselves. And with that, I must leave. Excellent. Let's, let's thank Mr. Dawson for being We'll continue questions for the, the rest of uh, the speakers up here. Um, so please wait to be called on. Uh, we have a lot of people tuning in on the internet. Wave, they might see you on on camera. Uh, and please wait for the microphone so everyone in the room and everyone online uh, can hear you. Uh, please announce your name and any affiliation you have and let the games begin. All right, right in the middle in the back there. Um, my name is Bridget Ulrich and I'm a recent graduate of Georgia State University in nutrition, which is all about personal responsibility. And I did have a question for Galston, but since he left, I will not bring that up. Um, my question is, when I talk to liberals about the debt issue that you kind of address here, what I usually get is, well, the money supply is being inflated, which is good because it'll make it easier for us to pay back our debt. And I'm wondering, how do I address that when they say that? Because they seem to think that these things, a lot of times, are not an issue when I speak to them. Thank you. Well, I, I would raise two issues to that. One is that it may not, I mean, the classic way of dealing, governments have dealt with debt in the past is inflating it away. I mean, if you're paying it back with cheaper dollars or less, you know, dollars that were worth less, it, it goes a lot further. Uh, the problem with that is twofold. One is that many of these programs themselves are actually inflation adjusted. For example, Social Security benefits or the cost of health care will rise with inflation, thereby making Medicare more expensive. So you're chasing your tail. Uh, you try to get out from under the debt by inflation, but the debt is actually growing faster because, you're, because the underlying causes of it uh, are inflated. Uh, number one. Number two is inflation is really a, a very pernicious and very regressive tax. I mean, I inflation is, is a horrible tax on the poor. Uh, so what you're, again, you're going to get is uh, this sort of regressive situation where some of the people that uh, Dr. Galston was talking about who are wealthy are going to continue to get their benefits all inflation adjusted and they're going to be paid for by people who are going to have to go out and find that their food costs have doubled and tripled. Uh, so I think that it's remarkably unfair to do that. I think that addressed it adequately. All right, next question. Uh, right here in the front. Yeah. <clears throat> Hi, my name is Alexandra Eaton. Um, I'm a recent graduate with a dual major in political science and anthropology. Um, so I was thinking a little bit about the predictive numbers that uh, Mr. Tanner showed. And I'm, of course, cautious about predictive numbers. Um, especially with healthcare costs, I've heard that there's, it's going, it's going to vary tremendously. It's going to be very, very difficult to determine. I think anybody who looks at the level of um, education costs and would have tried to predict that in 1950 for now, it's really, really difficult to use predictive numbers. So my question is, if we are faced with something where we, those really are the debt numbers we're looking at, what's the solution? Is it essentially that we just say, all right, you guys can't afford health insurance, I'm sorry, 
you don't get services? Is it that we need to be trying to do predictive preventative things to help bring that down? Do you think there's a combination that works? And is there any system that you think is pursuing this direction of reform? Well, Tom addressed uh, uh, some of the, the solutions here, but I, I was just going to say that's why I actually gave two, uh, an optimistic and a pessimistic scenario on that to account for some of that gap. The, the smaller number is basically based on a much smaller Medicare number and assumes that we do reduce health care costs. That, for example, the ideas in the Affordable Care Act um, succeed in driving health care costs down to something closer to the level of inflation. I think down to the, the prediction is 1% higher than uh, GDP growth. If that's successful, then you only, Medicare is only $38 trillion in the red. Uh, if it's unsuccessful, then it's closer to $90 trillion in the red. So that's why you have that huge gap in between. I'd like to add a few other things. Uh, one of Bill's responses was to say, well, I presume we have a regulated insurance market, which is fairly a fair assumption, but I think that is part of our problem. What we have right now is a system in which you don't really insure. We have a prepaid medical care system because of the tax treatment of the insurance you receive from your employers. And that generates a lot of really perverse incentives, which are one of the reasons driving up uh, healthcare costs. They're not the only thing. Healthcare may also be a superior good, meaning in economic terms that as your income rises, you actually spend a larger share of it on healthcare. So that uh, seems to be part of the story. But part of the story also is the fact that people don't act as customers, because I go in and I, it's paid for by my insurance. It's not coming out of pocket. Uh, so we have, on the one hand, the tax system is distorted medical care provision in such a serious way that I think should be addressed. The other problem that we have is the regulation typically on the state level that requires you to get a lot of things in your insurance packet you may not want. So uh, it, when it comes to issues like mental health insurance, some people may be interested in, in insuring against that, but I'll tell you that is a major feature driving up the insurance cost of universities because you get the right to pay a therapist to talk to you about your, your problems. Well, that means college professors love that. They love talking about things, and they use this dramatically. And because it's a requirement, because of the psychiatrists and psychologists and their lobbying, people are uh, overusing it, if you will, and this is driving up the insurance premiums. So I think we do need to look to a much more deregulated market for insurance, allow people to actually insure rather than prepay a whole bunch of treatments, some of which they may not want at all, such as pregnancy benefits for gay couples, for example, which is unlikely to be needed. Um, and they should not be required to have to buy that. One alternative is an interim reform that, that I think has been quite positive and needs to be expanded is health savings accounts. The idea behind health savings accounts is the money from your employer goes into a health savings account. If you don't spend it, it can roll over into a retirement account and grow. So now I have some incentive when I'm purchasing medical care to actually ask, how much does that cost? Whereas under traditional, just plain old insurance, as it's traditionally understood, I'm not interested. That's paid for by the insurance company and moving toward health savings accounts and ultimately a deregulated or regulated by market principles insurance systems, I think will generate much better incentives for people to act like customers and to produce some kind of customer uh, uh, push for uh, control of costs.
right in the middle here. Hi, my name is William Smith, and I'm interning at the Koch Foundation right now. And first, I'd like to thank the three of you for participating in this event. Uh, so my question concerns a form of welfare that many people probably don't think of as welfare, but I think I'm safe in saying many of us in this room, or to many of us in this room, it's a very pressing issue, and that's the federal subsidi subsidization of higher education. Uh, we all know, it seems like every week there's a big report coming out about the rising cost of tuition, and I was wondering if you could speak to the history of that practice and what might happen in the future. Uh, can't say that I, this is an area that I particularly work on. We have an education folks here at, uh, at Cato who do deal much more in depth with this. But I can tell you that the subsidy problem, essentially the student loan problem or the federal subsidies to this, actually is a prime contributor to the rising cost of a college education. It's essentially a pass-through. Essentially what happens is that the government says, oh, we're going to give colleges X amount of money if they raise their tuition, so they raise their tuition so they can get that X amount of money. Uh, what happens then is if you're not one of the people who gets the loans, uh, then you're in trouble, or, if you're one of the, you, or else you're in debt forever as you're following the subsidies. So basically, they're just sort of passing this through to the university rather than, uh, rather than actually helping you be, uh, make it more affordable. Let me just add something on that that um, some people have suggested, and I think with a lot of plausibility, that we have a, a kind of education bubble, if you will, also. People are realizing that the vast investments they're making, even out of their own pockets in the form of loan burdens, are not justified by the increase in uh, wealth or income that will come about because of a college degree. And I think we need to get back to thinking about a college degree not as just a ticket to a higher income, but something you enjoy, something that's a consumer good. When I went to college and I got uh, degrees in philosophy, people used to say, what are you going to do with that? And I said, I'm going to set up a philosophy consulting firm and get really rich. Uh, my point was trying to explain to them, I'm not investing in my ability to earn money. I'm spending a lot of money because I'm interested in these questions. It's, an invest it's a consumer good, not an investment good. And that's part of what I think we need to shift people and they're thinking about that. Uh, I think that we will see a major change in higher education in the next 20 years in this country because it is not a good deal economically. And those people who enter getting a college degree thinking it's about earning more money are being disappointed once you take the amount that lost income for four years as you party or study, sorry, and then the um, uh, debt burdens that you bear personally, now add to that all of the taxpayer money that's going into this. This is a really bad deal, and that's something that needs to be addressed. Yeah, I think one thing can be added to what Mr. Tanner was saying in that a lot of people that say you pass it through, they say, well, the universities are just being like jerks by raising this, this price, but really using you know, supply and demand and saying the people that want this good, they're, they're going to be able to pay more. It's a system that the universities can use given the constraints that they have of a lot of people having extra money. So it's not just the university fault. Uh, I think that that's, that's fair to add to that. Sure. Uh, we'll start up in the front, and then we'll go to the back. Uh, I'm Greg Weeks. I'm a graduate student at Catholic University. And I was wondering, other than saying that we should all become engaged and responsible members of civil society, do you have any suggestions for us young people as to specific things that we should do to deal with this group of issues. Thank you. 
I've got a couple here very quickly. I think Michael may have a few as well. Uh, first thing is save money. <laughs> yeah. Right? Save your own money. Set it aside, and when you're young, think you can afford to put aside so much money per week. Think of it in terms of Starbucks coffees, right? If you put aside $25 a week, that's seven Starbucks coffees, one a day. It's not that much. Get used to setting that aside and increasing that dramatically as you get older. Because that money that has been promised to various generations is not going to be there for you. So you need to start thinking about your own future. Just a matter of realism. I'm not being a mean person. I'm being realistic. Save money and make wise decisions along those lines. The second thing is get angry because what is being done to you is wrong. This is a really grossly immoral thing that older generations have made decisions that have catastrophic consequences for you and your age group. And I think you have every reason to be angry about it and to express that in a variety of constructive, nonviolent, non-destructive ways in a public discourse. Uh, I think that this system is grossly immoral and unfair to load you with the, with the requirement to pay staggering tax levels to pay for the benefits to previous generations. Uh, so that those are the two bits of advice that I have. So be angry and also be realistic and start saving for your own retirement, setting aside money uh, for yourself. And do it when you're young and get used to it. Just realize, I won't be able to retire on government support. I have to be able to take care of myself and my family when I'm older. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would just sort of only half facetiously add, get rich. Uh, and, and, I, and I say that because one of the things that really annoys me is that every year you find these politicians go off to these colleges to give these commencement addresses at graduation, and they'll tell you how you shouldn't go into business uh, or anything like that. You, what you need to do is don't worry about getting rich because that's bad. Instead, go into public service somehow. And, you know, I'm, look, I'm all for public service. I'm probably earning less. I know I'm earning less here at Cato than I probably could make as doing something else and, and things like that, but that's fine. But there's nothing wrong with going out and starting a business because you're going to employ people and you're going to help people live better lives. There's nothing wrong with going out and inventing a new product that's going to make the world a better place. There's nothing wrong with going out and making your own, getting wealthy so that you don't have to live off the society. Uh, you know, uh, it's, all, it's all well and good to, to do other things, but there's nothing wrong with being successful. And I, and I think that we live in a society right now that denigrates success and that somehow thinks that success, being part of that 1% is evil. I think you should all strive to be part of that 1%. I think that would be a great thing. Shouldn't we all become community organizers? <laughs> <laughs> I think there, there was one, there's one more thing to add to this. Uh, I was reading in preparation for this event. It was either a long piece in either Vanity Fair or The Atlantic. Uh, and this guy was you know, in his 30s having this debate with his dad and saying, you screwed me, and now I'm, you know, I'm going to end up paying for all the benefits you received. And his dad said, yeah, but you're doing the exact same thing uh, to your kids. So that's something that you know, we can get angry, but we also shouldn't get complacent, the flip side, because we could probably survive and just put the bill on our children. But if we don't start something now, they're going to end up in a lot of trouble. In the back row, we'll go uh, with the white shirt.
Hi, uh, Dr. Palmer, Greg Dolan, Senator Rubio's office. I was wondering, maybe you could put a historical perspective on this. You know, you say get angry and, and sorry, hold up the mic. say get angry and, and fix this problem. Can you put a historical perspective on this? What is the conditions that we've seen in the past in any other countries to actually fix these social programs? I know that Chile is one example, but that took a dictatorship. Can you put it in a perspective of any kind of democratic country that has actually done it in a free way? And what does it take, maybe, your prognosis here in America to get it done? Thanks. First off, Chile is not a dictatorship now, <clears throat> and they have maintained uh, the uh, uh, private pension plan substantially. A number of other countries have done that as well, have moved towards uh, 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 defined contribution systems rather than defined benefit systems in which you're able to save for your own retirement. There is a very serious problem in a number of countries, and I was discussing this with uh, some people earlier today. In Poland and in Hungary, for example, they did move towards allowing people to save for their own private retirement. The government nationalized that. So you were saving in your private retirement account, and then the government came along and said, wow, money, <laughs> and confiscated it. So we have to be alert to that question, that unlimited governmental power means nothing is safe. This is why the issue of restraints on government authority and power are so very, very important. And for Bill, who's not here right now, to defend himself, I think that one of the best things we can do is take issues off of the table of being subject to public choice and say these things are off limit. The government may not have programs in those areas uh, whatsoever. Uh, Canada is doing a much better job. It turns out the Canadians are much more adult than people in the United States. They've had a serious discussion of these issues, and Canada has brought about actual budgetary restraint. In addition, this will shock a lot of people, Canada doesn't have all the government programs the United States has to encourage homeownership deductibility of interest payments on mortgages, government-sponsored enterprises like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to uh, securitize them. And lo and behold, I actually went to Canada. They have homes. I was shocked. <laughs> there was no governmental program to encourage homeownership, and there they were in their homes. This is uh, really amazing. So it's possible to have homes without government programs to uh, encourage it. And they have homeownership rates assuming you think home ownership is a wonderful thing as opposed to renting, and I have no opinion on the matter. It's a matter for people to choose on the basis of their own budget constraints and other uh, uh, matters. Uh, their home ownership rates are same as the United States. It's not a, a big difference. So there are lots of ways to address these problems without having governmental programs. Uh, you also find in some countries in Europe much more adult discussions than we have seen in this country. And even those who talk about limiting government, in my opinion, are not talking enough about what really needs to be done. Germany brought about some budgetary control, and they actually reduced the, federal, the payroll of the German government. Not by a lot, not by enough, but they actually reduced it. This is not happening in the United States of America. Uh, we are in a... Uh, 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 an orgy of public spending in this country. And there are other countries we can look to for much more sober approaches. All that said, even those that are doing a pretty good job are not doing enough to address the fiscal imbalance. There needs to be a much more sober adult conversation and to say, 
do we need to continue subsidizing Amtrak if the trade-off is grandma doesn't get her pension? And yes, Big Bird. Big Bird has to die. <laughs> but I think Big Bird actually can support itself in the market very effectively. That, by the way, is just a drop in the bucket. It, it, <laughs> Big Bird only consumes uh, <clears throat> seed. But uh, <laughs> we need to begin looking at a lot of government programs and saying these have to go. These have to be cut. We cannot afford them. Let's move that into the voluntary sector and do so in a very adult and grown-up way. Some countries have initiated that. Canada is, I think, a good example. We should look to the Canadians and ask, what are they doing right that we're doing so wrong? Yeah, I mean, just to add, I think that Tom's right, that there is, if you look around the world, you do see signs of hope out there. It's not uh, totally bleak. Uh, on uh, Social Security reform, some 30 countries have moved to a, a contributory system system. Sweden has partially privatized the Social Security system and made a number of other important reforms. They, they actually, as much as we think of Sweden as the huge welfare state, and it is still an enormous welfare state, it's smaller than it was. They actually have significantly made cuts and they've changed their labor policies and done a number of other things to encourage economic growth. Uh, in Chile, uh, you know, yeah, the, the generals took power, but their purpose in taking power wasn't to fix their Social Security system. Uh, you know, that, that was not, we, we don't move out the tanks, we've got to save Social Security. Uh, I mean, and it, it's, you know, that was, that was sort of an ancillary benefit that, that came along afterwards. Uh, so there is, there is hope, I think, in that. But it really takes you guys getting involved. Uh, I mean, uh, someone said, well, besides getting involved, but you, that, that is really a key. I mean, politicians listen. I mean, we, we think, you know, that all oh, we, we talk to them and they never pay any attention to us. Believe me, I spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill, and they could tell me exactly how many phone calls and letters they got. They listen. The problem is, who calls them about Social Security? AARP. They don't hear from you guys. They hear from AARP saying, don't touch our benefits. Uh, you know, the Medicare is coming along. Oh, well, you guys are going to have to pay for it. But, you know, how often do you call your congressman? Everybody, every senior, you know, they, they can't, got to keep the government out of my Medicare. Uh, you know, that's, um, you know, that's important. You guys got to get involved. All right. We'll have another question uh, up here on this, on this aisle, please. All right, thank you. Hi, Andrew Murray, uh, Congressman Mike McCall's office. And playing off your comment right here, Mr. Tanner, what suggestions do you have to get uh, millennials more active? You know, obviously, we're all here tonight. I'd like to see more people here in the seats. Uh, going forward, how can we be more proactive? Actually, I'm going to turn that over to you because you work with the students. Uh, I think Students for Liberty is a great group. You're the, the work that you do with them. So, yeah, I think I think getting informed and and being willing to address issues, whether or not you understand them fully, because a lot of people I think are stuck on the idea that I don't understand this issue fully, so I can't bring it up, but you only get to test your theories by bringing it up and being, being bested in arguments and then refining yours and going back. Uh, I mean, this is something that really challenges our future. And, and I think that just starting uh, is, is sometimes the biggest hurdle that we face. Acquiring knowledge, there's lots of sources to do that. You can go to college for free online on any of these issues. Uh, but to get started and, and to start taking action, I think, is, I think is key. A lot of people are more interested in you know, playing video games and uh, 
you know, going on dates than caring about their future. And I think those things are very important. I love <laughs> dates in video games. But uh, I think there needs to be some rational balance where we have to grow up and stop just expecting our elders to take care of us like our parents took care of us uh, and start taking care of ourselves. Can I add something um, to that? And that is educate yourselves. LearnLiberty.org, a little shout out for that. I think it's a great program. You can learn a lot online. Uh, recommend reading this cover to cover a few times, mm -hmm. and then passing it on to your friends. But also, I encourage engaging your elders in terms that are respectful to them, but make it very clear that the policies have very bad consequences for you, but also for your children or prospective children. One thing that we find systematically is that uh, people who view the, who are worried about their Medicare payments and so on, uh, when it's phrased as what impact will this have on your grandchildren, they change their perspective, framing matters and engaging your parents and grandparents in, in a, a friendly way and pointing out the unsustainability of this. They're not monsters. Uh, they don't want to continue hurting their own children and grandchildren. They just want to hurt the children and grandchildren of other people. <laughs> but when it comes out, it's their children and grandchildren who will be affected. Most people actually say, well, we should, how can we get out of this problem? Finally, then, is coming up with policy solutions that don't harm people who made decisions dependent on lies that were told to them. And we do have that problem, which is to say, someone who's 87 years old and earning Social Security, we do have moral obligations to say, we're not just going to cut it off and kick you out. How do we do that? We need to allow you to exit from the Social Security system and lose your entitlements or any claims on it, be able to retire or to save for your own retirement, but then come, across, come up with those very serious budget cuts that will allow us to finance those older generations and be able to give to them what they were promised. That, I think, is a very important moral obligation. And the only way to address it is through very serious and systematic budget cuts and other kinds of, of spending throughout the uh, uh, system. One thing I would suggest, it's just a thought, would be stop invading other countries. <laughs> That's a couple trillion right there. All right, we're going to take a question from our online audience from down here in the front at the computer. And this will be our last question of the evening. There will be plenty of time to ask other questions. Uh, I'm pretty sure the speakers are going to be joining us in the reception hall afterwards. So if you have that burning question, feel free to approach them there. Okay, this comes from online viewer Russ. Uh, Herbert Stein said that if something can't go on forever, it will stop. And... Uh, projections, Mr. Tanner, uh, reach scenarios that we can't expect to ever happen. So when do, when do things fall apart and it has to collapse? Hmm. Well, we don't know exactly when they'll fall apart. Uh, they can go on for a surprisingly long time. All you have to do is look to Europe and you can see that, uh, you know, they're still trying to struggle on now that in the midst of the collapse, they seem to continue to refuse to make any serious reforms. Uh, that said, 
I think that the time window, the horizon, the time window for making reforms is actually fairly short because I think that if you saw, remember they, they first chart on the budget deficits, that we do have sort of a little gap where once, whereas we get rid of TARP and the stimulus fades away and things like that, that the budget, the sort of structural budget deficit falls until the uh, entitlements kick in around 2020, 2021 or so. Uh, I think uh, once those entitlements begin to kick in, it becomes much harder to make any reforms. As Tom said, once people have come to rely on these benefits, once people are retiring on these benefits, uh, we sort of have an obligation to, to take care of them because they relied on our lives. Uh, it becomes very hard to make reforms at that point. And uh, once the baby boom is fully retired and they're all collecting benefits, it's going to be very difficult both morally and politically. To, to make the cutbacks that are going to be necessary. So I think we've got to begin to make the reforms uh, within the next few years, or when it does happen, when it can't go on anymore, uh, that it's going to be, you know, not going to be floating down on a parachute. It's going to be uh, coming down with a big splat at the bottom, and we're going to see the type of turmoil you see in Europe and people in the streets and all that sort of thing, which would be very bad. Do you have any closing thoughts? Well, I would just like to conclude by pointing out that the primary element of Social Security, what we call Social Security, old age and survivor's insurance, already went cash negative in 2010. Yeah. It's already in the red. That is to say that the tax revenue that came in from the uh, uh, wage taxes imposed on everyone in this country is less than the amount that went out. The difference is made up by the phony trust fund, which is invested entirely in government bonds. So that's interest on government bonds. It's an accounting fiction. That's coming from general tax revenue already. And even that, which is just an accounting fiction, will be exhausted in the near future. So it is currently cash negative. So we have already entered a phase where we should hear, we should see bright blinking red lights. <laughs> It says, this system is broke. And I should just add the note of urgency to it. Every day we don't address it, it gets a little worse. Yeah. And that should focus us. This is a very serious moral issue. It's not a matter of twiddling a couple of dials. We have to address it, and I think in a systematic and sweeping fashion. That's why in this book I didn't propose tweaking this and tweaking that in order to make it eke out, limp along another couple of years. One could do that and say, oh, well, we can extend this program by another three years by tweaking all of these dials and so on. I think it's really time to take the ax right directly to the trunk of this tree and chop it down. The welfare state really has to go. And I think it's your generation that should stand up and say, you know, we want to be more responsible than our elders. We are the responsible generation. We want to take responsibility for our future and shock everybody. Because in fact, I think it's young people who show more responsibility than their elders who have gotten us into this terrible situation. So stand up, be the responsible generation, and really don't settle for twiddling the dials to make it last another three years. It's time to really get rid of the welfare state. Thank you. All right. 
So there were, there were a lot of you that still had questions to ask. Uh, again, you can ask those out in the reception hall afterwards. Uh, but you can also find some answers to your questions on Cato.org. We have a lot of resources available there. Uh, definitely check it out. Write about it in your papers, your grad work. Uh, just for personal interest, definitely go online. Um, that's Cato.org. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this event. I hope it also uh, kicked off a dialogue that will continue. Uh, a lot of people in this room are from very different worlds than you may be. So take an opportunity to enjoy some drinks outside and, and talk with people that uh, you wouldn't usually. We host these events at Cato uh, once a month, so stay tuned for uh, next, next month's edition addressing how do policy uh, issues impact young people. So uh, before we head out, uh, it'll be right out the doors. Uh, let's give one more round of applause to our speakers and for Bill Galston.